Welcome to the URM Journey to Academic Medicine podcast, also known as the URM Jam, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. On this podcast, we will address the real and perceived barriers faced by historically underrepresented in medicine students and residents who are considering a career in academic family medicine. We'll provide practical tips and personal advice on topics like leadership, scholarly activity, CVs, mentorship, and more. I'm Dr. Omari Hodge. And I'm Dr. Tochi Iroku Moliz. And this is URM Jam. So for today's episode, we have Dr. Cleveland Piggott. He's an MD and MPH and a family physician at the University of Colorado Department of Family Medicine. He received his MD and MPH from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and completed his residency training at the University of Colorado Family Medicine Residency. As a faculty member, he co-founded the Justice League, a working group on diversity, equity, and inclusion at Colorado's Department of Family Medicine, and is now the inaugural Vice Chair for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Family Medicine. Dr. Piggott has worked on DEI and anti-racism issues at the local, state, and national level, both inside and outside of organized medicine. In addition to DEI efforts, Dr. Piggott has a full panel of patients and teaches both at the medical school and residency program on various topics. In his free time, he enjoys visiting national parks, ballroom dancing, and spending time with friends and, of course, the new baby. Hello, Maya. Welcome, Dr. Piggott. Thank you so much for having me. I so great to have you here, Dr. Piggott. Ballroom dancing. I've got to get moving, man. You make me feel bad here. It's <laughs> wonderful. So let's start off with a, with a hard one. Well, not really hard for you, but some of our listeners may not be familiar with this. When we talk about the word didactics, for our listeners, can you explain what that is and give them the concept of um, formal versus informal or um, when they hear that word, so it won't it won't be so foreign to them? Yeah, of course. And so I hadn't heard the word didactics until maybe halfway through medical school. I like to think of them as lectures or teaching sessions. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's scheduled didactics that happen maybe half a day a week right. and follow a general structure, intro, objectives, the lecture, summary of key points and questions. Mm-hmm. And those are oftentimes known as like formal didactics. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the more traditional sense, they're mostly someone talking at you and you don't have much <laughs> learning. Yes, we know that. <laughs> which also means they're relatively ineffective forms of teaching. Right, right, right. right. Those are the ones that you're fighting to stay awake with. Huh? Stay awake. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I say that those are the ones that people do the iPhone prayer where they bow down and look at their phones. And <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Oh, I've oh, yes, the okay. iPhone prayer. Right. Okay. So, okay. So um, the next question we have for our audience is that the audience mm-hmm. members may want to know, what are the key components to think of when creating a didactic session? Because this whole, this topic today is all about creating that engaging didactic session. So right. what are the key components that you, one needs to think of when they're creating a, a didactic session, an engaging didactic session? To keep them awake, didactic yeah. session. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I mentioned the structure, you know, intro objectives, all that, but there's other things you can add to it, right? Uh, how are you going to engage your audience? How are you going to figure out what level they're at? So you know that what areas you need to emphasize in your presentation, which areas you can just sort of skip over mm-hmm. and move on for, 
even sometimes knowing what time of day the didactics are. If you're after lunch, whew, you better have some energy. So that right? is that's that a is great true. point. Very, that's very true. important. I, you know, that's right. true. We don't think about that. Right. So. Right. Mm-hmm. Like didactics after lunch everywhere should just be stopped right now. We need to start. <laughs> it just should not happen. This shouldn't happen. Right. Because yeah. all that blood flow is going straight to the It's going straight eyes. to your gut, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, so, yeah. and you got to also the time you have. Right. And mm-hmm. so a 50 minute talk versus a 20 minute talk versus an hour and a half talk completely different. And most people can really only pay attention for about 20 minutes. And though creating a didactic sounds simple, uh, is actually really hard. And it takes like three times the length of the presentation to prepare mm. for it. And that's like on a good day. For me, I spend about 30 minutes just finding gifts and memes to add to the talk. But that's my own sort of issue. Right. No, 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 you're right. I, I, I hadn't even thought about that because it is true when you're trying to prepare that. That takes a lot of work because you have to think of the different things that are going to happen. Right. Um, and will they understand And depending on the audience or right? even if it's something that you've done before, it may be a totally different audience. So you have to adjust it accordingly. Right. Um, yeah. And if you have a mixed audience, even more complicated. And how do you not yeah. bore the, those who already know it? And then how do you um, keep them engaged while not speaking too above the heads of those who are novices to the subject matter? Right. So yeah. with the mixed audiences, I find that doing many small group sessions so that people can really teach and talk to themselves so that everyone can sort of find that growth edge of sort of going a little bit deeper because there's so much richness usually in the room on the topic in which you're discussing at the moment. And, you know, those strategies help. They keep cognizant the fact that people have to use different strategies to retain this information. Some people can just take the old fashioned auditory. You just tell me and and I, I have that type of memory. But when I'm talking amongst my peers or having to teach it immediately after hearing it or thinking about a vignette that we're discussing based off of what you just told me, for many other people, that may help um, help them retain the information much, much longer and much more quickly than the old fashioned method of just sitting there for hours on end. Absolutely. We know this for patients, right? We know that Things we tell our patients in a clinic setting, they're not going to retain most of it. We know that's the most ineffective way, yet we still do that so much in teaching. Like we need to be doing teach back. We need to be having people show us, giving them a chance to do questions beforehand or look some things up so they have their uh, pre-work beforehand so we can make that session that we have with our patient uh, the most productive. The same thing has been shown in teaching. So what examples do you have for us for creating an engaging didactic session. And how did you come to know that these were actually effective methods? Was it trial and error or just a lot of research ahead of time? Yeah, Uh, I have two examples that come to my mind because they're two very different lectures. One lecture I've been giving to our 180 or so medical students every single year is the Affordable Care Act and its impact on healthcare. It's a 75 minute presentation. What? (laughs) Talk about Affordable Care Act. That is more that's more potent than Ambien. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's like you can bottle that and sell it. Material, right? Yes. Oh my goodness. Okay. So explain to us. Explain. Let's give him a moment. Let's 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 allow him to explain himself. All right. That's rough, man. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) So already, like I know no one can pay attention for that long. It's a dense topic. And then uh I also 
I mean, question whether it's the right point in the curriculum, but they say, come teach. And I say, I'll be there. Right. <laughs> and so what I've done is I break it up into chunks. I throw in jokes, gifts, memes. I kind of walk them through it. If I have a really busy graph, I let them know, hey, in your free time, you can look through this in detail, but I just want you to get the big picture here. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, I give breaks and pauses halfway through. I say, stand up, stretch. Uh, I do audience response questions so that people can uh, be engaged. I say, turn to your neighbor and talk about what was one thing you would change about our healthcare system. Just so that even though you're in this big room, people have opportunities to engage. The ways I know it's effective are when they are engaging a little bit. And it's really hard for people to step up in a big sort of lecture. And then really looking at those reviews. Um, I know if I'm going to get 180 reviews, not 180 people are going to love it, even if it's the greatest lecture in the history of lectures. Uh, But I can find little pearls from their general ratings, but also the little comments. If I start seeing themes, it helps me tweak it so that it's better each year. And I think it's uh, each year the evaluations have gotten even stronger, which is uh, something that's really I'm really proud of. And so that's like one example of like the most extreme when you're doing a talk to that many people. No, I've heard, I like that. I like that one because I've heard about, you know, I've seen that done when you have really large groups and it's just, it's it's just impossible to have that connection with everyone. So having them, and then it's impossible for the reticent person to speak up and say, this is my experience. You know, if you call on them, but if they get to talk to the person that's sitting next to them, even if it's a stranger, uh, they're more willing to be open and discuss. And you're right. It's really sometimes hard to get them to come back and focus. <laughs> Everybody break up, stop you know, chatting with your neighbor. Let's let's move forward. So, yeah, I believe in that one as well. That's really, really a good uh, mechanism. And then the audience response system. I know we're not supposed to promote them, but do you have a number of them, different types that you use, um, you know, um, that you've found useful or is there anyone, you know, I'm, again, we're not promoting anyone. We don't want none of us. Disclosure, we are not getting paid by the or whatever he's about to say. Uh, so, but uh, what are what are the top, you know what are examples for for our listeners out there of, of audience response systems that uh, you've used or could use? Yeah, and so you can go simple and old school, right? Sometimes I just have people raise their hands. Okay, yeah, <laughs> get a That's lot of low tech, low tech, old right. school. I like it. Right, for <laughs> do that. Um, right. With the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of these presentations have been virtual, which has been really challenging. And so uh, depending on the virtual platform, you can use different things that are built into them. And so I oftentimes uh, use Zoom. And so we use a Zoom poll system. And so we can get that information, show it to them. It actually has made breakout rooms really easy because people have no option but to come back and in <laughs> right yes say, you control their movement i love <laughs> right yeah the, I, I don't know have you ever used poll everywhere that was one that i used before that one because mm-hmm. it, it allows people to use it from their laptops their their yeah. phones whatever it is that's yeah. a, even if it's virtual you pull everywhere you could even use it in, even if it's virtual they could still use it so and the uh, results are instant right Yep. Yep. And you save them for research and scholarly purposes. If nice. you want to use it later nice. on. Yeah. Academics nice. is all about scholarly work. <laughs> I've used one called Kahoot. I don't know if you guys have. Oh, yes. That. I've heard of it. I don't yeah. use that one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've used Mentimeter, like getting oh, Mentimeter. Oh, yes. I've seen that. Yeah. Mentimeter. Yes. Yes. I've yes. Seen that one. That's so nice. That's, okay. So, okay. So then the other example you have. What you said you had two examples. So yeah, I think the other example, and I think oftentimes we're teaching little smaller group sessions, is I do a session on microaggressions. And so this talk is a little bit shorter. It's 50 minutes usually. 
I use videos. Uh, I have people anonymously uh, share my progressions by uh, writing something down and putting it in wow. a paper bag or hat. People walk around and then read it out loud. Uh, we do also small groups where people can get into groups of three or four and just kind of talk about their experience. Even though it's a 50-minute talk, I truly only talk at them for about 20 minutes. The rest of the time is really them diving in and getting into it. And so, of course, you have the regular evaluations that can be helpful for knowing if it's effective. But the other two techniques that I think is extremely helpful is one, oftentimes I might know someone in that who's in that talk and I kind of pull them aside, try to lower my status if I'm someone who's of a very different group from them, if it's like a a student versus an attending versus another sort of peer, uh, I might have to kind of say, hey, I really, really, really want constructive feedback on this. Right. And they oftentimes, right. because they feel comfortable around you, will share that. But I think the best way of seeing really the power of teaching is, you know, six months later, when I start hearing people using the language, when I hear stories right. of them stepping up and interrupting microaggressions, I'm like, hey, I was yeah, part yeah. of that. And I think that's right. yeah. why we all love being uh, teachers in family medicine. That's well said. True. Well said. So, no, that's that's true. Yeah. So that, that's good because you've given us nice two nice examples, one big group and then a small group. But and you at the end of the day, you're making it your own and you're trying to find ways where you're not only talking at them, you're engaging them. Uh, you mentioned earlier about bringing in, telling that, you know, pre-reading, having some materials that they have to read ahead of time uh, so that when you come into the classroom, you're just discussing. And then sometimes it's not even a classroom, right? It may be anywhere. Some people have talks outside on the grass and when it's warm outside and things like that. So, but, but that's really interesting. So, I, I mean, these are, these are nice examples and um, they're, you know, you just only put a, just the tip of the iceberg on, on all the things I know you do. Um, but my question for you, for the, those learners out there, the students and residents and the junior faculty who are out there to listening now, what are the, some of the pitfalls um, they should avoid? Cause as they're, they're probably excited. They're like, okay, oh good. I'm going to go start, do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. What are pitfalls that, you know, lessons learned that they should avoid when creating a didactic session? And then how do they overcome? What, what barriers may there be and how do they overcome those? Ooh, how much time do we have? I know. <laughs> so, so. Uh, I'm just hearing sort of like. Don't uh, discourage our okay. listeners. No. <laughs> I'm wake up if you're driving. <laughs> uh, but I think the big picture is to think about what do you want in your lecture and how do you best learn and do that. And so pitfalls, reading from slides. If also, yes. oh, oh, I'm so glad you said that. Oh my gosh. Yes. Can you say that one more time? Slides, like oh. what's the point of you? Right. Exactly. Right. Uh, right. Oh my gosh. Too many words on your slides and really add, make the most important things there because it's nice so that people can refer to it, but then add your stories, add your examples, uh, make it come to life for your learner. I mentioned this beforehand, just being too long. And so mm-hmm. people really can pay attention for like 20 minutes. And so I've actually mm-hmm. seen like in our residency program, a lot of didactics, we're trying to shrink them into like quick hits uh, so that people can really just stay present and really right. listen during those presentations. Like TED Talks. Uh, yep. Exactly. exactly. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, even the school systems, I'm glad that you said that, Piggett, that they're doing the same thing. I was talking to my daughter and she said, mm-hmm. you know, we don't even have, um, homework like we used to, and the class sessions are totally more dynamic in terms of the interactions. They're realizing that they, you know, nobody just wants to sit there and, and be spoon fed material all day long. They really want to engage in their learning. Yeah, absolutely. And what the biggest pet peeve, there's a 50 minute lecture 
and Electra goes for an hour. Like, yes, what's that about? Right? What's that about? Audience, right? I can guarantee. Mm-hmm. 95% of the time that extra right. stuff you just put in that last nobody didn't nobody, have to be there cared. <laughs> nobody cared in, in fact I, I usually try and time my talks to be less than the time I'm allotted right. because you know you just never know somebody would have a question and it right. just it's a start, sparks an engaging discussion so right. oh my gosh you're right that, that's, that's <laughs> huge I mean, you can't get your time back you know and you can't no. even say anything you just have to sit there and take it on the chin <laughs> Uh, oh. There's so many others I could share, but the last one I want to share is about you think you're giving a how presentation when you should have been giving a why presentation. Wow. Okay, that's a snap. Wow. I'm snapping. Yes, I'm snapping. That, that, that's a snapping that moment. That, that is information that I can love. You, can that. you elaborate, please? Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. And so I see this a lot when people are teaching on issues related to either equity or something that is controversial. They assume because someone invited them to talk that everyone's on the same page and the buy-in on the topic is there. But if you buy-in is not there, you get a rude awakening. And so it's really important to assess uh, people's knowledge, their comfort and or buy-in at the beginning of a talk or ideally even before you create your presentation. Mm -hmm. That way you can figure out how much time you need to spend on explaining the why, why. This matters and yeah. why you should be caring about uh, this topic. I've also seen the topics where people want to run before they walk. I see this, especially when I'm teaching on issues of equity. Uh, people want to invite me to talk about how to be an anti-racist. This is a, this is a running sort of topic. Uh, sure. I've done the walking uh, right. aspects. Right, right. What is culture? What is implicit bias? Those sort of right. things. And so I will sure. fail if I just kind of go in as like, let me teach you all how to do this concept called being an anti-racist right. when you don't even understand the concepts of implicit bias or buy into it. Right. You know, I was talking to a guy who he's a he's a very, very, very well-known speaker who has done it internationally. And I asked this very same question that you brought up. It was what are what are some of the main things that you've seen that can really dictate whether or not this talk will be successful. And he, he said this, the very same thing you said, he said that um, knowing your audience is something that's probably so underutilized in time, in in terms of preparation for um, giving a talk and not just knowing like it's a bunch of medical students, but knowing the culture of those medical students and what they have been exposed to, what is their norm, as opposed to just assuming that we're all on the same page and I can just start from my understanding of the material and that you would get it. That's a huge point that you made. I I really appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. So we've been talking a lot about these didactics and um, as you know, there are some changes coming through the ACGME for what family medicine will look like moving forward. And you've already alluded to some strategies that you use that are probably not in the mainstream, but how do you see didactics changing um, for the future? How do we roll with the punches and make didactics conform to what the changes will look like moving forward? Uh, I think that's a great question. Uh, the big thing there is we got to move away from these long 50 plus minutes talking at you. We really need to start mm-hmm. making these didactics as interactive and put some 
ownership on our learner uh, to do some of the pre-work, do reflections, add more cases into our presentations, Mm -hmm. do flip classrooms. Mm -hmm. We know all that works and it's going to be a painful to get the culture change for that because it's so much easier to show up and have listen. Mm-hmm. But if we're truly trying to create competent doctors and have people reach their competencies, like we need to be doing a lot more of that. We also need to be really mapping out our didactics and just making sure are we are our learners getting the material on all the topics we feel like they should be competent on. Right. And that takes some more oversight and less yeah. of uh, who's available to talk this week. Yes, yes. That reminds me of uh, way back when that was usually how it was done. The re- chief president looked at the schedule and say, okay, who's available? <laughs> and then right. plug them in, plug and play, as opposed to, uh, you know, figuring out what, what do the residents actually need? Uh, what are the things they need to be competent doctors when they graduate? Uh, so that's, that is, that is very important. Um, my, my question for you, what resources are there for those who are listening? Um, if they want to know more about this topic, where would you send them? Yeah. Uh, the nice thing is we have this friend and this thing called the internet. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> uh, Professor Google. <laughs> yeah, there's so many great uh, resources, both scholarly and unscholarly uh, regarding this. There's uh, lots of journal articles now about the topics of teachings and didactics. There is a recent one in 2021 called promoting active learning and residency didactic sessions. Uh, I believe one of those authors was Dr. Warren Newton, who's the president of the American Board of Family Medicine. I think that's a great sort right, of article. He's, yes, he's the he's the current leader of the ABFM. Yep. So mm-hmm. that's a, uh, he, he's a very wise man. So <laughs> absolutely. Uh, he was actually one of my faculty when I was back at University of North Carolina before he, he moved on in the world. Uh, Mm -hmm. SDFM also has so many great resources. Their teaching resources library is incredible. And it's an opportunity for your development on it and also pre-made presentations. Pre-made presentations can be a great way to start. I encourage you, though, if you do use a pre-made presentation, make it your own. Nothing's more painful than having someone present on something they don't feel comfortable with. So change the slides, use the format, make sure you're looking up and seeing if there's anything new in the literature. But then don't be afraid to get a head start uh, to kind of move forward on a topic you might not be as familiar with. No, you're right. That idea of taking it and then making it your own, right? Because there's nothing more upsetting when someone who's presenting something, look at us and they're like, oh, I didn't know that was there. (laughs) You know, or they start searching for the slide. They're like, I know I have a slide in here somewhere about this thing. And then you have to wait for them to find it. So make it your own. Take time with the material. Yeah, spend time with the material. And and again, they don't have to start from scratch. So are you listening out there? You don't have to start from scratch. You can find something that's already there that's available to you from the SDFM resource and then then adjust it accordingly um, for for you. So yeah. And that's a huge point for a lot of our faculty who might be new to academic medicine because you may... You may find yourself at a job where you're, you're, you know, maybe you haven't done a lot of talks and they're like, okay, we want you to teach on asses and basis. And you're like, okay, I haven't done that in forever. Well, the good news is just like Dr. Pickett said, you can get on the web and you'll probably find somebody's presentation. You don't have to reinvent the wheel and you can borrow. And as long as you properly cite people and let them know who the credit belongs to, you don't have to start from scratch. You do not have to start from scratch. 
Well, you have been a fountain of information. So why don't you tell our listeners, what are the three main take home points you want them to kind of focus on based on all that you've given us today? So the more active learning you facilitate, the more someone will retain from what you're trying to teach. Mm. Remember what you hate when you're listening to a presentation. And honestly, just do the opposite of that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love the that. The opposite Matthew. of what you hate. Okay. Yes. I like that. Yes. Uh-huh. It's like um, the art of war meets my dad. <laughs> um, the last one is uh, seek constructive feedback from your presentations. And so right. whether that is from online survey, someone that you trust, you also oftentimes can uh, get a faculty member or someone from the outside that listen to your presentation because we're always learning. We're always trying to be better. We only get better from really getting constructive feedback. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've learned a lot and our listeners, I'm sure, have learned a lot as well. Any parting words, any final words? Uh, keep on teaching. It is not as hard as you think, but it's, it is a labor of love and it's one of the best things that I do with my day. You've been listening to the URM Journey to Academic Medicine podcast, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcast providers, as well as on our website at stfm.org slash urmjam. Follow us on Twitter at stfm underscore fm. 